so turns out Shahid has been a bit busy. Uh, there, I see a, an article from UploadVR.com. Uh, former PlayStation figurehead Shahid Kamal Ahmad's first VR game is Chimera Zero. I mean, we do it. Well, I mean, my first question is why? Why didn't we get the exclusive on this? Is my first question. We do a podcast together, and the guy doesn't even tell us what he's working on. <laughs> we gotta find find out from Upload VR. UploadVR.com. <laughs> so give us some. Give us some. Give us something. Just maybe a tad unfair. Mm-hmm. Given that you, Mike, have actually played <laughs> some of it, I have. an earlier version, mm-hmm. um, you you have actually come over and visited the Shahshid and played an earlier version of this. It's progressed a fair bit since you last saw it. But I've been keen to stress to people that at the moment it's a tech demo. Uh, the ideas are crazy, but I've started to implement a few of them and they seem to be working and i'm really excited about it i mean the whole point of me getting into making games again was i wanted to make stuff that i was really proud of and it's going to take time it's going to be hard and it's going to be worth it so i'm just drawing on all of the things that i've always loved particularly science fiction you know i've loved science fiction since i was a kid you can see why i was so so incredibly hot on No Man's Sky, right? Because yeah. it, it's literally like bringing my childhood to life. And so that, that was it. That was me sold, you know, just seeing the first video. And then, you know, with, with Chimera as well, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I was walking along uh, the riverbank in Guildford uh, with Sean Murray once. And this was early on uh, in the development of No Man's Sky. And he turns around and tells me that he played Chimera when he was a kid on his brother's Amstrad and he loved it. And I thought, no, nah, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> no way. You've, you've played this really, really old 1985 game. And turns out a lot of developers who, let's say, are seasoned have actually got memories of it and they're kind of fond memories. This is nothing like your daddy's Chimera um, or in this case, you know, um, a 32-year-old game. But I wanted to use the name again because I felt like when I made the original, the next game I should have made should have been the sequel. And I never did that. I tried to do something fancy pants instead and it didn't quite come off. Some people liked it, some people didn't. So I thought, what would I have done had I gone into a coma uh, just after finishing Chimera and then woke up 32 years later, but with my brain better than it was and with technology just 32 years ahead. And of course, I'd be doing a VR game, I'd be doing the sequel, and I would be including some of the crazy, crazy ideas I was beginning to develop back then. Instead of trying to think about what other people would like, I want to do the thing that I wanted to make, the thing, things that I thought would be really cool. And to put in mechanics that really haven't been properly tested yet and to create new ones that work only in vr you know you describe a mechanic to someone and it's hard enough to communicate how people will feel playing that mechanic in a traditional 2d game but then you try and describe the same thing in vr and it's like oh i'm not really getting it it's only when you feel it 
And I think you know which bit in particular I'm talking about. And I wanted that particular mechanic to apply uh, to absolutely everything in the game, mm -hmm. just to bring the whole thing to life in a way that I don't think we've really experienced in VR yet. I know there's a fair bit of teasing here, but it's going to take time. I've got to put in a lot of work and I've got to make a game I'm going to be really, really proud of. And I hope that in doing that, it will excite a lot of people. It's definitely hard sci-fi. Uh, some things I haven't mentioned publicly, there will definitely be sandbox elements to it. Uh, it will be pretty big. It will be mechanically incredibly deep and interlocked. Um, and it will feature some things I don't think have been attempted before, probably because people haven't been crazy enough to try them. So what stage is the game at right now? I'd say it's still early. It's a tech demo, mm -hmm. but it's a promising tech demo. Uh, I've shown it to a few people and the feedback has generally been very positive. Um, people can see that it's a tech demo and not actual you know, full-on game experience at the moment. But, you know, the feeling of being in this environment and it feeling very real and futuristic and having mechanical complexity that isn't around in other VR games just yet is beginning to emerge. So the next thing is hopefully get some people interested, mm -hmm. build a team and build the game of my dreams. It's going to take a pretty decent-sized team to make this. It's going to take uh, somebody with real belief and vision to back it because, you know, it's risky. VR is risky. And then me trying to make a, a really special experience in VR, a really special game, that's risky too because install base just isn't there yet to justify um, anything huge just yet. So it's really only very brave people who are doing it. But I think this is how you move the medium forward. You don't do you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, tiny little increments or what have you. You don't really excite people that way. I want to make something that really moves the needle and that's going to take belief from my partners, belief from the team that I build and, you know, it's going to be my job to kind of spread that belief, really. So right now, are you in the stage of, of trying to find somebody to work with, someone who's going to support the game? Uh-huh. Okay. So if you are one of those people... <laughs> <laughs> Drop your hit a line. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> well, look, I said like, I have played it, and uh, the thing I, I I played the demo, but I've heard the story, and playing what I have played and the story that you have told me, marrying those two things together and understanding how A will meet B is a very it's a very interesting proposition to me, and I I really hope that you're able to play it off, pull it off, because it's something that I want to play. So, I love you, man. Oh, I love you too. All right, let's let's move, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, I I I'll ask you, Shahid, as a as a fan of Mario, can you tell me what Mario's job is? Um, isn't he a plumber? Turns by, out, by turns just? out, uh, <laughs> no, is the answer to that question. According to Nintendo, this was originally spotted by Kotaku, Mario's character profile on Nintendo's official Japanese language website states that Mario used to be a plumber. Translated, it says, all around sporty, whether it's tennis or baseball, soccer or car racing, he does everything cool. As a matter of fact, he also seems to have worked as a plumber a long time ago. He's retired, everybody. Yeah. 
Congratulations, Mario. <laughs> I did it. Shahid would say that Mario is old and he's retired, so he doesn't he doesn't have a job anymore. He just wanders around, plays sports. He goes to you know he goes to the park. He talks to other people. He occasionally he plays golf. You know, he's an old man. That's what an old man oh does. He drives a fancy car <laughs> because he has a midlife crisis. Yep. So he has, he's compelled to drive fast cars, mm-hmm. or in his case, fast <laughs> carts. Middle-age crisis. Middle-age crisis, yeah. that's, oh that's Shade was right all along. That's incredible. He plays golf. He goes <laughs> to the golf. Just plays. That's, that's just wonderful. And every now and then he relives things from his past. He can't help himself but reminisce. Wow. Yeah. He's yeah. made his fortune. Let him retire. Mario is officially retired as a plumber. Uh, it, at this point, Genius. I think it's concerning that he would still be a plumber, but uh, no longer. So there was a Nindy's uh, announcement. There was one of the uh, kind of pseudo Nintendo Directs that they've done for these, um, where they basically took some time to show off a bunch of indie games coming to the N- Nintendo Switch. And I wanted to kind of phrase and kind of like kind of build this discussion around something i saw russ frustick of polygon say that basically the nintendo switch is filling the vita shaped hole so now that the vita is has mostly gone away it seems like from looking at a lot of these announcements that nintendo is picking up a lot of these indie games for the switch there there are tons i think they announced like 19 games um and i think all but maybe one of them uh, one or two of them were unknown to this point it was a very small handful that i've seen in the past there's still games from the original indies presentation before the switch came out to be to debut like stardew valley which is apparently very close like in final testing but they're waiting to announce a release date until the testing is complete and just a bunch of other games that are, like I see on the Nintendo eShop that are, that are coming out later on. Um, some of the new games announced included No More Heroes, Travis Strikes Again. So this is like another sequel to the No More Heroes franchise. Super Meat Boy Forever, which is a new game with the original Meat Boy still coming to the Switch before this. They're both 2018 games. Uh, Kentucky Route Zero, which is a con- which is part of the console versions uh, that's going to be coming out of the PC game. Uh, Shovel Knight King of Cards, which is uh, more in the Shovel Knight universe. Polybridge, which is a game that I've played on iOS. Um, And a date has been announced for SteamWorld Dig, which comes out later on this month. SteamWorld Dig 2. So these are games that I was familiar with in some fashion, but there were a bunch of other games that looked really intriguing that I'd never seen anything of before. One of them is a shooter called Morphe's Law, which is this weird and wonderful kind of Day of the Dead style shooter with morphing body parts. So if you like, you can shoot someone and if you shoot them, you can, I think, choose to grow parts of your character's body. And if you get shot, your character sink, like shrinks. So you can end up in a scenario where you have these giants and these minuscule people running around and it affects the way the game is played. Look like a really interesting mechanic. Uh, Yono and the Celestial Elephants, which is a cute elephant platformer. And a game called uh, Maluka, or Malo- Maloaka, I think, sorry. It's a, an adventure game of a really interesting art style. There are so many, <laughs> so many indie games coming out on the switch and as uh the the patron saint of the vita uh shahid i wondered what your opinion is of this idea 
It's cool. It makes sense. They don't have tons and tons of really high-profile games, big-budget games coming yet. It's still, you know, let's face it, it's the first year. We haven't even hit Switch's first Christmas yet. I know. Wow. You know? Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's great that they have a lot of this stuff coming. No one's going to be complaining of uh, a lack of games. Yep. And it it's nice because they, they're kind of at, at the... Uh, I guess at the smaller end, it's possible to get more of a profile. Plus, you know, developers love Nintendo. I don't come across many developers who don't like Nintendo. Yeah. You know, for for them, the the device that they carry with them is a Nintendo. They love it to bits. Um, so I, I think it's good. I, th I think from a strategic perspective, from Nintendo's perspective, obviously they're, they're copying the approach that uh, we took at PlayStation when I was there. Um, it it's a a worthy approach. Let it not be forgotten, though, that Steam is still king when it comes to to indies and mm -hmm. independent developers and so on. Certainly in terms of revenue, but in terms of exposure, consoles give a really nice marketing and promotional fillip. And also, as I say, because developers love the platform, just the idea that they're going to get their games on Switch is very appealing. I hope what happens is that they use the hardware of the Switch really well. Because that was the thing that I wanted people to get excited about with Vita. Because when Vita came out, one of the things that so many people loved about it was just how versatile it was in terms of all of the inputs and, and so on. You know, it was a very powerful device with a lot of features. And the Switch has taken that a lot further. A lot, lot further. Yeah, it seems like at, at least a lot of the games that are coming to the platform that have existed... Um, in other forms, are touting the ways in which they are uh, targeting specific Switch features, whether it be HD Rumble or like on like in-game multiplayer, right? Like we're we're seeing a lot of games adding either either adding multiplayer or adding a local multiplayer that didn't exist before. Um, so I, I think that there are a lot of developers that are targeting that stuff, and I agree. I hope that because companies that are coming to this new as well are finding ways to make it make the switch game work right like make it work for the switch don't just make it a pc port and some of those things are much less gimmickier if that's a word than vita i mean trying to get people to use the back touch on the vita just you know a bad we, feature well you know we were into a hiding to nothing really um at first, you know, when developers thought about it, it's like, oh, cool, you could do this. It means your fingers aren't overlaid on the screen, but really you just wanted to use the uh, the sticks. And with Nintendo, uh, as we've always said, and my favorite feature certainly is the local multiplayer. People just feel like, yeah, we've we got to do that because that's just so cool. It's a way of exciting friends about games that you've got. You know, I absolutely love it. And I, I still use that feature. Uh, certainly in, in Mario Kart, two or three times a week, which is a lot, you know, um, because previously all of my game playing was pretty much solo, the odd bit of online multiplayer, but mostly solo. But now there's a fair amount of interaction with the family, you know, and that's beautiful. So developers love that as well. And it, it's a useful feature. And I'm glad that they're taking advantage of it. And I think this makes a lot of sense for developers too, uh, from a financial perspective, the fact that the Switch is being marketed both as a portable console and as a home console could probably allow developers to demand higher prices when 
uh, effectively reselling these games on the eShop. These games came out, some of them years ago, on um, either on Steam or on the PlayStation Network store. And now is a chance to maybe bump the price a little because you're bringing new, feature, new features, um, maybe better graphics, maybe a new multiplayer mode. And the Switch is a home console, you know? Uh, and there's an expectation, I guess, that ho- games for home consoles cost a bit more. So I think it's a win-win for everyone. It's a win for us because we get more games. Some of these I never played on Steam or on Vita. And now I can have them on the Switch and I can play at home and I can play on the go. Nintendo is happy because they have a constant stream of games. And developers are happy because they can monetize some of these old games again. So I think the answer to the question of, is the Switch going to fill the, 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 the hole left by the Vita? I think the answer should be yes, if this continues. So we were one thing we were just talking about is like big games. So Shahid, you mentioned like big games. You know what big games are coming? Like it's, it's great to have the indie games, but what about everything else? I think we're starting to see this. So you know, we've spoken in the past about FIFA. NBA Two K eighteen is I think a couple of weeks away. That's coming out, and there's some interesting stuff around that, which we'll probably get into in a later date. Like, I think that's the, one of the first games that includes a requirement for memory cards and stuff, but we'll talk about that uh, another time, uh, maybe maybe when the game comes out, because I actually want to try the game. I want to see how a big game like that will work on the Switch. I'm, I'm very intrigued to see how what is considered to be a top-tier AAA sports game will work. Um, I've spoken in the past about the WWE 2K18 game coming out, but there's been another big one announced today. LA Noir is coming to the Switch on November nice. 14th with alongside the the remaster for PS4 and Xbox One. We've also they're also bringing uh, a specific VR game to the Vive, which is probably going to be new content in some description because it's VR, of course. But this is really big news. One, this is Rockstar, which is crazy on both sides of this, right? Like this is a, mostly I expect, unmodified from a violence perspective and a guns perspective, etc. game from Rockstar on a Nintendo platform. And I know that there's been some Grand Theft Auto stuff in the past, but they've they've not been like the, the typical regular games that you would get on other platforms that have maybe been on DS and stuff like that. But this is huge. This is huge for everyone, right? Because it's day one with everybody else. This game is coming out. Like, Switch is being put forward, and they are making specific design choices for the platform. So it's the complete original game of all the downloadable content. They're including a Joy-Con mode, which uses the gyroscope. I don't really know how they're going to... I don't know what that means yet, but they're they're doing something which takes advantage of the gyroscopes and the Joy-Con. Gesture-based controls, HD rumble, new wide and over-the-shoulder camera angles, and also touchscreen controls for when you have the the game on the go. This is huge news, I think. Now, I know L.A. Noire is is an old game, but Rockstar are giving Switch the equal treatment Mm -hmm. here, and what I assume is a relatively big release for them. Well, on the on the blog post, I think uh, I saw more details about the better graphics for uh, PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 4 Pro. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they promised uh, 1080p on PS4 and Xbox One and uh, 4K on the PS4 Pro. And obviously, I don't think we're going to get either of those on the Switch. Uh, so maybe no. the Switch gets some slightly worse HD bump. 
uh, whereas the PS4 and the Pro, they get 1080p and 4K. But I'm very happy to see this because I never played the original LA Noir oh, for some reason. Game. I think it was during the period of my life when I was kind of distancing myself from video games during the PS3 and Xbox 360 era. So I'm really happy to finally play this game. So I'll say um, LA Noir was extremely overhyped, uh, almost to like No Man's Sky levels, honestly. Um, and so it left it left some level of underwhelm, but the overall game itself, I really, really enjoyed it. It was great. I think people were expecting Grand Theft Auto Detective, and it's not exactly that. Um, it's a little bit more locked down in some areas. It's not like a. It, it doesn't have the same open worldy feel a lot of the time. Um, because it really is a detective story that you're you're going through. You, there isn't so much of like you can go and follow this mission tree and this mission tree and this mission tree. Um, it's it's a little bit more locked down. But I absolutely love this game, and uh, I haven't never played it again. So I'm excited to play it again, especially on the Switch. So this is a this is a big one. I think I, I think this isn't something to be ignored, right? Like I could. It, if they would have announced this game just coming to PS4 and Xbox One, I would have totally understood and accepted that and been like, yeah, okay, you know, fine, it's a Rockstar game, blah, 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 blah. And this is huge. Shahid, what do you think about this news? It was a really, really good game. And remasters tend to do okay. So I don't know how big it will be commercially, but it was such a significant game at the time. Yep. You're right, it was hyped. I think part of the reason for the hype was it took so long to do. And the face stuff. It was all the face stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, that yeah. was what people yeah, were going right. wild for. Yeah, it, it was very cool, you know? But it took, I don't know, what, seven years? Mm -hmm. And it, it killed the studio, and there was a lot of bitterness and so on. And yeah, you could argue that it was underwhelming compared to the original promise. But you know what? I missed a lot of that. And I just saw the game for what it was. Yep. I didn't finish it. I would love to have another crack at it. And you know what? I'm not really interested in more resolution. I'm not interested in more detailed textures. I am interested, however, in how Rockstar have decided to use the additional functionality of the Switch to perhaps make it a bit more engaging and interesting. So that, that could be cool. I'm starting to feel like game studios are exci as excited about this as everybody else. Like, you know, I, I'm feeling like... These, there are companies, these companies, they just want to have their games on this platform because games are so much fun to play on this platform. And I feel like if you love games, you must see that, right? Like, I feel like everyone that I know that loves games loves this device. So it would make sense to me that developers are like, no, if I'm going to play this game or if I want people to play this game, I want them to play it on the console they have the most fun with. And that might be the switch right now. So I'm these these you know we it's 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 easy to see how this show has mostly become the switch power hour uh since March and it's this is it right like I don't want to play PlayStation games anymore. Like I I want to play Switch games because that's where I have a ton of fun. And speaking of which, Mario and Rabbids. Can I talk about this for a minute? Mm. Mm. This is a game that I didn't fully understand. Like what is it? Is it Turn-based strategy, or is it real-time yeah. strategy? It's turn-based strategy. I don't yeah. know if I've ever really played many turn-based strategy games before. 
Um, so I didn't really know what I was supposed to be really expecting from this game. But I've played a couple of hours of it, and I am having an absolute blast of this game. It is fantastic. It's weird and funny, but also brilliant. Like, it's just really good fun to play. It's like a totally different type of game. And it's fun to have a Mario game in a different setting. I don't feel like we've had that for a long time. Like, you know, like, this is this is akin to me to, like, Mario Golf or Mario Kart. This is, like, Mario turn-based strategy. We've had, like, Mario RPG, right? The Mario and Luigi Superstar Saga stuff. But, like, this is... Yeah, I, I tell you, I'm really, really, really enjoying this game a lot. And... uh I'm looking forward to playing more of it. Right now, it's the game that I'm thinking about when I'm not playing games. Uh, it's a lot, a lot of fun. I really recommend it. Yeah, uh, I was surprised by how polished and fun and seemingly consistent with the Mario universe everything is, is in this game. Um, when I first saw the rumors, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, maybe last year, of the rabbits uh, sort of blending with Mario, uh, like many other people, I sort of scoffed at the news because it... It didn't make a lot of sense to me, um, but I have to say they made a very special game that is super fun. Um, it's uh, it's great to see how the Mario universe can um, adapt to this different formula, and the game feels perfect for the Switch. Um, you know, the, the, you have these battles that they can that you can win them in about ten to fifteen minutes, at least right now in the initial stages of the game mm-hmm. and it's super fun super polished in, in, you can tell how nintendo collaborated with ubisoft to make sure that um it feels like a mario game and it looks like a mario game uh it's totally not a one of those you know spin-offs that you, some company takes a popular character but you can tell well what's it, what what's this doing here you can tell that nintendo pushed ubisoft to make sure that it's up to the quality that we expect from the Mario franchise. So, yep, double thumbs up. And you've played some time, you spent some time with Sonic Mania too, right? Um, yeah. Um, so I was really, I was looking forward to Sonic Mania because part of me thought that it was a chance to, for Sonic maybe to redeem itself in my mind. Uh, of course, historically, I've never been a huge fan of, of Sonic. Um, I didn't have any Sega consoles, and the only Sonic games I played were, uh, you know, when when Sega started doing the Advance versions on the on the Game Boy Advance about ten years ago, maybe more. And playing Sonic Mania, so it's a super polished game. Uh, you know, Christian Whitehead and the team at Head Cannon, uh, you can tell they love Sonic. It feels like uh, like what I believe an old Sonic game should feel like. But my problem with Sonic, uh, which has always been the same problem, and this game doesn't change that, is that the entire, the whole premise of Sonic works against its own level design. My problem with Sonic is that by the requirement to go fast, to run, and the fact that the game incentivizes you to go fast doesn't make me appreciate the level design, doesn't let me discover the level design. When I'm playing Sonic, I'm constantly confused by where I'm supposed to go. Mm-hmm. I don't fully appreciate the design of the platforms. And more often than not, I'm constantly stopping to th- think, well, I guess I should uh, find some way to accumulate speed again. And it just doesn't work for me. Um 
and I I feel kind of bad about it because I I want to like Sonic. I I I think Sonic is cool and I like the graphics. I like to look at Sonic. I don't like playing Sonic. And I'm I'm not sure if this makes any sense, but it's something that I want to like, but at the moment that I put my hands on the gamepad, it doesn't connect to my brain. I, f- I feel like I agree mostly with you having any time I've played Sonic in the past. Um, there is something about Sonic that doesn't 100% gel with yeah. my mind. I would say in the short time that I have spent with uh, with Sonic Mania, it does feel a little bit more cohesive and enjoyable to me um, in a way that some of the older Sonic games did. But but I do agree that like I think one of the reasons that I have been a Mario guy and not a Sonic guy in my lifetime is just because I'm uh, I, I'm not necessarily about the go fastness of it all, you know, and yeah. and and yeah. I do like the consideration of the platforms that you get in Mario, and that it's you know there's a time limit, but it's not like a constant rush. Yes, yes, and that is why I'm. I was thinking about it and I'm so excited about Mario Odyssey because uh, I've been watching some gameplay videos again from PAX um, last week and it seems to confirm the feeling that this open world Mario is going to be fantastic for folks like me who tend to appreciate the sense of exploration and weird experimentation that Mario entails. And looking at those videos, watching people play, the fact that Mario can now do so many weird and strange and unexpected things, it's like combining uh, Breath of the Wild with Mario 64 in the best possible ways. At least that's my impression now, and I hope that it's true. And I was thinking about it in uh, as as I was playing Sonic... And I was playing Sonic with, like, I was playing Sonic because I was so, I I was forcing myself to like it. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking about Mario Odyssey coming to the Switch. So it's a very it's a very strange feeling. Um, I guess I wanted to give Sonic another chance. And I mean, if you love Sonic, this seems like the ultimate game for you. But it just doesn't work for me. Yeah, I I, I will say that I have enjoyed, uh, I have I have really enjoyed more. Sonic Mania than I have in like previous games. Like I, I do feel like I have had more fun playing that one than I have had in the past. Mm. So, so yeah, I think it, I think it's I think it is a fun game for sure. And uh, I know people that like Sonic games are going wild for it. So I, I figure maybe maybe me and you just, we just don't have enough Sonic history to, yeah, to really truly I, appreciate this. I think so. I think so. Yeah. All right. Should we take a break? Yeah. Okay, today's episode is brought to you in part by Crimson Mesa. Crimson Mesa is excited to announce its first iPad app, Shokem Nimai, the ancient game of the river. Shokem Nimai can be found on the App Store by searching for ancient game of the river, and you can go find it on your iPad today. Shokem Nimai is a fun strategy game for parties and evenings with your friends with simple-to-learn rules. The game has a really simple introduction. It does a good job of explaining this game to you, and there are this game's been around for a lot, very, very, very long time. The idea of this game has been around for a really long time and they do a great job of explaining all of that as you're going into it 
And the game is super, super simple to play. And really, kind of the game itself, you're not necessarily focusing too much on the iPad whilst you're playing because it is a kind of a tension-based game. It's like a board game where you're moving pieces to kind of try and race to the end. So a lot of the fun I I have found when playing this game is to kind of stare out your opponent, you know, as you get ready to make your move. It's almost kind of like showdowns whenever you're playing. All you have to do is swipe on your pieces on the game to move them with the goal being to get your pieces around the board before your rival does. It is as simple as that it is based on the ancient game of the river which was popular very 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 long time ago but has been forgotten for thousands of years but it's back and costs just 9.99 on the app store crimson mesa creates premium tablet focused software driven by one principle to design quality experiences that their users will love and enjoy and they are also working on developing a new game with more serious gameplay targeted for our favorite platform the nintendo switch to discover why this game was popular many years ago in ancient times buy the ancient game of the river on the ipad app store for just 9.99 today you can find out more at gameoftheriver.com and there'll be links in our show notes thank you so much to crimson mesa for their support of this show all right so we have something a bit special now mike bithel he's a prominent independent british game developer he's known for games like thomas was alone and volume which me and federico spent a ton of time talking about in the past um he recently very recently in fact released a game out of nowhere called subsurface circular which is a text-based adventure game that he describes as a short which I guess is kind of like the the movie shorts, but we'll find out about that in a minute, I guess. The manner of the release was interesting itself because Mike announced the game on the day it was released without any prior warning of any kind that something was happening. Now, before we get to an interview that Shahid has conducted with Mike, I want to just talk about that for a second. And uh, Shahid, I want to get your opinion on this. This isn't some... Well, okay, so it is a genius move. But it's a move that only certain people can pull off. Totally. If if Jane Jane Schmain out there in the world, who is developing a game, goes ahead and releases her video game out of nowhere, and nobody's ever heard of her before, it's her first video game, and she has 165 Twitter followers, it's very unlikely that that game is going to gonna get anywhere i imagine actually quite a lot of games on the iphone app store are released this way yeah exactly mike was able to do this because he has some like gravitas i guess in the community by now yep what do you think about that yes totally that having said that it's still a huge and gutsy move yeah, of course. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm just saying that this, yeah. is, a, this is an but interesting you're right. thing. you're right. It's not for everyone. And, you know, some people might look at what he's done and say, well, you know, that's, that's quite a cool idea because you haven't wasted any energy. You haven't bored people. You haven't talked about the game too long. You haven't hyped it. But, exactly. But you've just gone bang. But the thing is, it's like, you know, that I've forgotten the name of that, that penalty kick um, where you literally just chip it over the keeper really slowly you know that one yeah i know what you mean but you're asking you're talking to the wrong guy <laughs> uh i think in italy uh we call it the spoon right i it's not called that it, it has a name <laughs> named after a pay, uh, named after a player i can't remember the name of it which is terrible given how much i love football you know sack me already but anyway that penalty kick you can only do it like once mm-hmm. <laughs> the keeper's gonna be watching you so mike can probably only do this once yeah because if he does it again it'll be like oh here he goes again yeah, yeah. you know exactly yeah. 
I think it's called the Panenka kick. That's it. That's the one, the Panenka. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. Look at you, Federico. Well, yeah. what can I do? I'm good at Google. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this this is really amazing, though. I mean, because he did two things. First of all, he made a short game, and he, it's an unashamedly short game. Mm-hmm. You know, he's even called it a short for crying out loud. The other thing is, it's a text adventure. His timing is really good. There's a fair amount of adventure. Sorry, adventure. Uh, interest in text adventures right now for some reason. I'm not sure what's brought that about, but there are a few others about. And the other thing that I thought was just genius was that this wasn't just a tweet and him going, bang, here's my new game. He prepared the ground, and most people wouldn't do that. So all the reviews were ready. You know, people had had codes in advance and so on, and everything was timed perfectly. It was a campaign. It's just that most people didn't see evidence of the campaign until the tweet came out. And Mike's really good like that. He, he has a, this very rare ability of making things look like they're really casual when under the surface there's an awful lot of preparation and hard work and blood, sweat and tears. But for most developers, you're right. There just wouldn't be the awareness. They wouldn't necessarily have... Uh, the nous and to be fair the contacts to be able to say well here's my new game and you know this is my reputation what do you think it's a short game but still i'd like your opinion and so on mike can do that you know and also he has a, a very unique skill he's really good at just reaching out to people and talking to them no matter who they are and being taken seriously he's great at that very few developers have that skill yeah, I think that this is a awesome thing to do, right? Like in my setup, I'm not trying to say that he's, you know, he's done something he shouldn't or that yeah, he's lucky he can do this. Like the reason he can do this is because he has a history of creating great video games, which has made him, which has given him a level of notoriety, right? Like this is, this is one of the things that's afforded to you when you, when you're able to do this. Like for example, most shows at Relay FM are announced out of the blue because we have a position now where we can talk about those things and and i get i get this idea of just sometimes you make more of a bang if you surprise people and that's what he's been able to do here but it's this is not a thing that's done in video games right that's why this is interesting this is not a thing that video game developers do there is a system, there is a process, and it is well respected and used, right? Like, you talk about your game, your publisher promotes the game, it goes out for previews, it gets on stage, you know what I mean? Like, this is different. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I guess, yeah. the reason that this has made such a big splash is not just because of the game itself, but because he did it the way he did it. Right, like it, this is a very different thing. And you're right. This can only be done once. This might only ever be able to be. Well, not ever. This might be the only person that can do this in a while, right? Like because anyone, if someone else does it next week, then they're just oh, you're just doing what Pizzo did, <laughs> right? But it is fascinating. Exactly, yeah. It's fascinating, yeah. irrespective of and, the game itself. Just the, the the decision to do this is really interesting, and it's a good game. I mean, it's been it is very highly rated on Steam, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, we were obviously very intrigued about this. So we sent Shahid out into the world, into the deep wide world, to find Mike Beetle somewhere in England and interview him. And the rest of today's episode is going to be that interview. Hi, Mike. Hello. How are you doing? I'm great. Yourself? I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, 
yeah, it's uh, it's nice. We're having a, a chilled out week. It's nice. It's calmed down a little bit, which is good. Wonderful. So congratulations on the successful launch of Subsurface Circular, which Thank I you. have actually been playing. You have actually played. I that have. is always I've... awkward when you do a when you do a chat like this, and, yeah. other, and you realize about ten minutes in the other party has not seen the game. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have actually played it oh, for an good. hour, which is about fifty-five minutes more than I play most games. That's very, and very good. I do good. intend to finish it. Thank you, and I'm enjoying it immensely. So, you seem to have hit upon the idea of. Marketing without marketing, if you don't mind using a Bruce Lee expression. <laughs> Choosing to announce the game on the day it was actually launched. Wasn't that a huge risk? It was a massive risk, yeah. No, um it was it was one of those situations where where we weighed up um different risks. Because I think the biggest fear that I had, and I've said this a few times I think publicly, but it's it's still true, is it's a small game. You know, it's a short game. It's quite small in its scope as well. You know, you're in one location for the whole game. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, indicates, I think, to an audience that it is a smaller project. However, if presented as a trailer, if presented uh, in conversation, it could sound like it was bigger than it actually is. And that was my fear was just that that we'd overhype it. And from my perspective, the risk of selling more copies but causing more disappointment <laughs> versus you mm-hmm. know keeping it relatively low key and, and letting it kind of build itself. Um, but hopefully everyone kind of knowing what it was, that was better to me. It was, But it was risky. I mean, it was, we were, <laughs> I remember for like six hours before launch, just like, uh, you know, hoping that certain politicians didn't tweet, hoping that no major <laughs> event occurred, um, hoping that no kind of uh, controversy hit. Because we knew that Twitter would be a big part of how it was initially spread. We knew that like, that was where kind of I'm probably most outspoken. That was where there was an audience who probably would like maybe retweet or maybe try the game. Um, so we were watching Twitter and just like, you know, stay steady Twitter, everything. And then we were very lucky in that it kind of, it kind of worked. It, it kind of, it did, it did kind of uh, find that audience at launch. But you didn't leave it entirely to chance, did you? No, of course not. <laughs> uh, the game's reviewed very well with Polygon giving it nine out of 10. And uh, the Steam community rating it as very positive. Given yeah. that you stayed in stealth yes. during development, how confident were you that the game would be well received critically? Um, we had no idea, as you never do. I think people think that reviewers tell you what they think of the game before it comes out, and it's very much not. I mean, maybe it is if you're more important than we are. But we um, we we had no idea, and of course, what we'd done is we'd sent um uh, review copies to certain outlets, essentially the ones that we trusted to kind of keep a lid on it, um, and the ones that we knew people at, um. So we we had sent out the review copies. Um, the only kind of indicators we had that the game wasn't terrible was that we weren't getting questions or complaints. We weren't getting people stuck. Obviously, with an adventure game, um, if you're playing it as a as a punter, there's already a walkthrough online, or there's already you know YouTube videos you can watch of how to get past stuff. But obviously, with critics, they often don't have access to that stuff. So you'll get an email from like a games journalist going, <laughs> um, "Mike, how'd you get past this bit?" So we knew that either none of them were playing it or that it was okay and it was going to be all getting through it. So that was what we knew. Um, we, In terms of like like knowing what the reaction would be, I was surprised with this one. I remember with Volume, we we had lots of chats internally and we'd done lots of playtesting. So we knew it was a, you know, we knew it was going to land about eight out of 10 mm. kind of Metacritic. We, we, we knew that was what it was. With Subsurface, 
less playtesting, more reliance on friends and family playing it. So you obviously take those kind of compliments with a pinch of salt. So I was skeptical. I was I was honestly expecting sixes and sevens was kind of where my head was at. But you, but when you're your own stuff, you know you're over. You're always hypercritical and always very kind of um, overly worried. But but the people around me were saying, no, this is a this is an eight. You might even get a nine or two. You know, like mm. this is an eight. This is solid. Um, and that's what that's where it landed again, which is great. And then um, yeah, the Steam reviews were at ninety seven percent positive, which mm. is actually probably more of a testament to how how good we were at telling people what it was rather than yeah, necessarily yeah, yeah, how yeah. good it is. Yeah. Because I think the players who would kind of balk at a short game or a you know, very narrative-focused game, they just didn't bother buying it. <laughs> like, yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like, that, yeah. that audience just stayed away, um, which is probably why we're doing so well on kind of those Steam reviews. Um, I mean, you described it as a short. Yeah. Which, which seemed to me very planned. Can you tell us what this means to you and why you specifically call this out. Was it to make it sure that the messaging was spot on? Yeah, it was all damage control from my perspective. Um, I just, I just, I, I try and be very transparent and honest with the audience. Um, and it's, it's not a lesson. It's a lesson I learned, you know, we, um, I remember with volume, um, I mean, you were around, we were doing, when we did the, um, when we did the, uh, the Gamescom review, uh, video of, uh, volume and showing gameplay footage and all that stuff. I remember back then I was trying to emulate kind of a triple A way of selling a game, like showing mood and, and, and showing, you know, exciting moments, but shown in a very kind of hopefully cinematic way. And that was bad because what that did was that kind of missold the product, I think, on some levels with volume. And what, and what we found actually was when we released, by focusing more on kind of gameplay trailers, we did much better. Mm. We, we did, the more we showed what the game actually was, we sold more and we um and and we the 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 reception was better mm. um so that was kind of a lesson we learned on that one and since then i've really tried uh to be as as transparent as possible and as specific as possible and with and with the biffle short thing it was really about placing the game in kind of the the the, the pile of games we've made kind of going okay you know us for thomas and volume you probably haven't heard of the Google project uh, shape that was that was a, that was over there somewhere but like you know that kind of scope of game that we've made um we need you to not be thinking about that we need mm, you definitely mm. not because especially I think because Thomas was such a jump up to volume in terms of visuals and yeah. scale and scope and features and all that stuff we had to kind of be very careful to manage the expectation and go no this is something else this is you're gonna. This is gonna be smaller, and yeah, the Biffle short thing played into that. The price played into that. The way we show it in trailers played into that, um, and I it it worked. Like I think yeah, in terms of the critical reception, which is you know has been great, um, it sold well as well. Like it seems that people, the right audience found it, which is which is awesome because that's how you build a foundation. That's obviously how Thomas was alone kind of took mm. off was because the people who would really like it heard about it and played it. And that's where we're at now with uh, Subsurface. And you also set the price pretty low as well. Was that mm. part of the strategy too? I mean, do, mm. do you think there's a, there's a direct correlation in uh, game players' minds between uh, pricing mm. and hours that they expect to be able to play the game? Is, is there such an equation? Was that in your mind when you describe this as a short and set the price so low i think it's definitely one of the variables right like i think i think it's a factor um 
gamers will always want more hours. Like they always want more replayability, more features, more whatever. Like those, those. I don't think that's ever going to be. You can't curb that completely. And there are reviews of Subsurface to say, "Oh, it's great," but I wish it was ten hours long. <laughs> um, <laughs> like they, they, those definitely exist. Um, that's what it, shorts two, three, four, and five are for, right? We'll see. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Um, but like, there's definitely um, there's definitely an argument to be made there. I was more concerned with just the whole kind of package, and yeah, I think I think the price reflects the duration. I think the price reflects how many, how big the game is in terms of like how there's only one location, and you're talking to robots the whole time, and there's music, but it's kind of uh, you know very carefully placed, and it's not constant, and all of these you know, voiceover. Again, it was about playing those expectations, and to be honest as well, I tend to, and I still do this, and it's it's kind of clumsy, but I think it's actually also how normal people think about pricing. I will literally look at the other games and I go. Well, it's definitely better than half as good as Thomas was alone, but it's not like it's not a full Thomas was alone. So, like maybe it's like maybe it's like three quarters of a Thomas was alone or something. And and but it, genuinely, that is how I that's how I do it. I, I priced volume because I was like, no, this is twice as as extravagant mm, as Thomas was mm. alone. So fair enough. Um, I think that you're placing everything in a continuity, and also with other games. I mean, that was the other thing we looked at was other similar games you know there's a really interesting explosion in narrative games uh, right now mm. um and there's lots of different points to look at on that curve um and we are we're at the lower end but i think that reflects the kind of well a that we're new to this area and we we kind of wanted to go in and you know go in humbly and and ask for people's attention um, but also, I, you know, in terms of like the um, the degree of choice, the amount of replayability mm-hmm. in subsurface circular, it made sense to not be quite as expensive as some of those, some of those games. But again, you just you just place it. It's a gut feeling, and you ask around and you check, and and most people who played the game uh, prior to launch actually were saying we should go a little bit more expensive. Um, but I kind of wanted that price to be where it is and, and i get to make that choice because it's my name on the, <laughs> on the box do you think the amount i mean you talked about the production um being slightly more constrained than than your other games mm. do you think the production cost also factors into your decision to call it a short and to uh release it at the price that you did um, yeah, I mean, we, I, <laughs> I, I know lots of people say this, but it's actually genuinely true in our case. We weren't necessarily planning on ever releasing this game, um, to the extent that when we were hiring people for the game, I was very clear with, with everyone who joined the team, like this is an R and D project. We're seeing, mm-hmm. you know, I want to place with some kind of interactive narrative stuff. I'm not sure this is going to be kind of, in, I don't think this is going to, don't know if this is going to be good enough to release kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, so it wasn't so much that the budget was planned with that in mind, but it definitely, yeah, factored in. Obviously, you you run the numbers and you go, okay, well, how many copies of this thing do we have to sell in order to make our money back? Um, and yeah, fortunately, with this project, because it was always kind of this weird experimental thing that a few of us were doing um, over a relatively short amount of time, it meant that it 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 is a really cheap it was a really cheap game to make comparatively um and that uh, that gave us i think it was more that it gave us the freedom to price it correctly i don't think we we didn't make it cheap because it was cheap to make it wasn't cheap but it was reasonable enough that it felt like you know what we can go low on this one we don't need to make back the kinds of money that it would, mm, would, would necessitate mm. a, a premium price point one of the things that i notice about your games is there's always this sense of taste Particularly with, what, what with, taste, with what flavor, what flavor? Like a strawberry, <laughs> like a banana. <laughs> no, de- definitely Bithel taste. Mm. 
uh, everything seems to have a beautiful visual weight to it. Everything seems to um, to flow really nicely from from a, a UX perspective as well as a UI perspective. Mm. Um, there's a lot of attention to detail, and it seemed really obvious to me that even though you call this a short, you mm. weren't going to compromise in any of those areas. I don't think we had a choice on that. I mean, I... Yeah, I mean, I was adamant from day one um, that, you know, we are asking people to sit and read for two hours and that better be a comfortable experience. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's, uh, I think you can get away. If you're if you're making five physics explosions casting 20 baddies in every direction, you can get away with a dodgy UX because the spectacle of it's amazing. Yeah. But like, yeah, it just has to be done well. And I think with good user experience design and good UI, um, it doesn't need to be expensive. I think people tend to get caught up on the flashy kind mm, of, we need to mm. render this really beautifully. We need to put loads of uh, dancing stuff on the screen. And actually just making something that feels clean and smooth. Yeah. Um, if anything, I think that would be a valid criticism of my graphic design taste is I tend to go towards the simplistic, minimalist, kind of very uh, clean aesthetic, which mm. maybe doesn't necessarily always fit the game, but, but you know, it's... Uh, it's certainly a nice, usable way of playing a game. Mm. No, I think it fits absolutely everywhere. Oh, and everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. Just yeah, always absolutely. make everything look always the same way. Always make everything look like uh, Dieter Rams or whatever. <laughs> Today's show is brought to you in part by Squarespace. Use the offer code INSERTCOIN at checkout and you'll get 10% of your first purchase. Squarespace lets you easily create that website that you have for your ideas. You can make your next move with Squarespace. They have everything that you need. They can give you the ability to grab a great domain name. They can let you take advantage of beautiful award-winning templates and so much more. It doesn't matter what type of website you're looking to build, whether it's a blog, a portfolio, or an online store. They're the all-in-one platform that will let you take care of all of it. They have nothing to install, no patches to worry about, no upgrades needed. Squarespace is the all-in-one place to get you set up. They have got you covered. You don't have to worry about anything. And they also have a 24-7 customer support team to back it up in case you need it. I've used Squarespace for years. I've got some projects in mind right now that I'm going to be using Squarespace to help me build the websites for. Like This is just the place that I go when I need to build a website. It's been that way for years and I'm a big, big fan of it because of that. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month. You can sign up for a trial right now with no credit card required just by going to squarespace.com. Then use the offer code insertcoin or one word, that's I-N-S-E-R-T-C-O-I-N, and you'll get 10% of your first purchase and show your support for Remaster. We thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. I wanted to ask you about this whole text uh, adventure thing. Mm. Um, I've got to start by asking, were you ever influenced or uh, inspired by earlier text adventures? And if so, what? Um, yeah, I mean, I, the problem I have, because I don't remember the names of them, but basically uh, in my school, we had a BBC Micro, and on that there were adventure games. I remember playing them a lot. And I remember one of them had an editor, it had a visual editor for text adventure. I, I, I need to find out what this game was called at some point, where you would basically, you could place squares that were the rooms and in like a, in a really rudimentary graphical user interface. Mm. And then you'd write the text and, you know, come up with the verbs and the objects and all of that stuff. And in my head, I remember, you know, as, a, as an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, like making these extravagant, amazing Tolkien-esque narratives. <laughs> I'm sure in reality it was two rooms bolted together. With, like, no, it made no sense at all. Um, 
So yes, I was very into text adventures, but to be completely honest, I was more into the idea of making them. I was more into the kind of the editing and the playing mm. with them. Um, in terms of playing them, I played a lot of graphic adventure games. Those were the what I had at home. So like um, the Discworld games mm. I loved. Um, uh, Starship Titanic, which um, is was Douglas Adams's um, graphic adventure game. Uh, which, which the more I kind of more distance I get from subsurface circular, the more I realize how much I was ripping that game off in terms of like the <laughs> the characterization style. But I, I, to be fair, I've made a very good career ripping off Douglas Adams, so I'm not gonna <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna apologize now. Um, but yeah, so and Simon the Sorcerer, the, so those kind of those classic British graphic adventure right, games right, were yeah. were a big thing. I weirdly hadn't actually played until quite recently. The only kind of the LucasArts ones I played, I, I remember playing. Um, uh, full throttle mm. the the biker one as a kid but the other ones i'm just now playing them because you know obviously they're re-releasing all of them and i'm I'm finally making it through those but so my my history is more that kind of british graphic adventure mm. games mm. um which ties into my humor and my my taste as well you know mm. i want to make that kind of stuff are there any contemporaries who are focusing heavily on on text maybe not entirely text mm. adventures as such um that that you find inspiring do you know, and this sounds massively pretentious, but one of the most inspiring things for me recently, um, so I judge the um, young game designers, mm. BAFTAs, and tw- teenagers are making really interesting stuff in Twine right mm. now, because mm. Twine obviously very kind of accessible kind yeah. of uh, platform to make stuff in. And I, I think this year and last year, there were quite a few of these kind of Twine games. And I remember playing them and just... Because I, I I was aware of Twine, and you know, a few of my friends make Twine games, so I, I dabbled. But it was just playing these games by like 14, 15 year olds that were much more narratively interesting than anything I was making. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just kind of playing them and thinking, "Damn, this is this is <laughs> this feels like I could play with this. This feels like it's a really interesting tool." Um, and then trying Twine, and because I've been making games for so long, being really annoyed by every feature that wasn't there. You know, all the stuff that I want. Um, so the, the kind of, that was where this idea of kind of, let's make a, let's make an R and D project. Let's make our own text adventure engine that does all the things I want to do. Um, and, and, you know, Muyu built it from scratch in terms of just making this amazing engine node-based system. I can make all these, these interesting kind of narrative things in. So, yeah. Muyu is a massively unsung hero, isn't he? He is, but he'd be we very should... embarrassed if you knew we were talking about him right now. <laughs> yeah, Muyu's, Muyu's my man. He's um, yeah, he did some great work on this. He well, he was the lead programmer on this game. Mm. Around also, obviously, Knights and Bikes, which he's making, which is looking really good, really good. That game. <laughs> Do you think we've embarrassed him enough now? I think I, I think he's already switched <laughs> off at this point. I think he does listen to your podcast. Actually, I think he mentioned oh, your no. podcast to you, oh, no. so he might hear this one. Ah, okay. okay. Well, I'll, Sorry, I'll let him know not to listen to this. <laughs> so it looks like from just about every aspect, subsurface circular has been a success. A yeah. modest one, but yeah, I think it's 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 definitely done better than we uh, we expected. Which is good. Are you going to do more shorts? So I accidentally said I was in the press email, so I sent this out. <laughs> so we sent, so we sent out the press email. Uh, I was quite tired. Um, and I accidentally included like the text, like the first of the Biffle shorts. <laughs> and I definitely wasn't meant to say that. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess, um, no, I, I, I loved the process of making it like the, the, the speed with which we turned it around, the speed with which we could make choices. And also frankly, the speed with which we could get feedback from the community. And there is so much interesting, 
uh, critique out there right now, um, both in terms of the story we told, although I think the story side of it, like I think I think there's probably more more to be talked about there. But the um, but in terms of like the game design and how it feels and and you know little ideas for improvements, um, yeah, it's very interesting. I, th- I I I've I've already said that we'll get we're definitely going to do more shorts. I think I I don't know what the time scale on those is or whatever, but like I think this is definitely going to be something we return to. Have you accidentally or perhaps even deliberately stumbled upon the mm. how to fix um, the developer model of having to have long gaps between development because you're pitching the next thing or trying to get traction for the next thing? Well, that's that's I mean, that's what we did here. And it's a weird one to talk about because it does sound it's a weird story. But yeah, no, this was that's what this was. This was we had um, we, we were at GDC and DICE uh, this year and we had a prototype. Really neat little game, plays well, feels interesting, kind of original. I'll show you after. If I haven't, have I shown you it already? I have shown you it. You might have done, but I'm definitely going to have a look. Yeah, we'll yeah. have a look after this. But like, it's a really interesting mechanic and it's a really interesting game. Um, And people agreed with that and we, we had some interest. And then, yes, we go into these big negotiations because of the kind of the scope of that project and kind of the what we want to do with it. And discussions drag on, and you will know of all of these processes from your <laughs> previous jobs. Um, but the, these kind of these kind of slower processes, and we were just sat there as a development team. And the worst thing you can say to a team of creatives is just wait for six months, mm. just wait. Mm. Um, so that's why we started making this. And now we're in the very strange position where we made a thing that was only ever meant to be a side project. Yeah. And that's now doing very well and being better received than anything we've ever made before. And we have to decide, <laughs> like, what so, do we so do now? So it's basically a B-side, but now you've ended up with a double A-side, basically. Um, well, I mean, we it was a B-side. We don't know if the A-side is an A-side. <laughs> but the B-side is sort of an A-side, so we're not sure. Um, yeah, I, it's 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 weird. And it's 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 kind of, it's something that we're now kind of talking about and working out what we want to do next. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's it, it's it's a it's a lovely problem to have. Mm. I recognise your style mm-hmm. uh, when when you write, and it's lovely. Um, do you think there are any other types of game out there, any other genres that would benefit from thinking through the the story element, the narrative? in Mm. a lot more detail just giving that a lot more attention do you think narrative or story or characterization Mm. is missing or weak in certain genres uh, and it could potentially benefit from it i think it is i think yeah i think there's lots of examples of badly written games i mean there's lots of examples of i think think you could definitely throw stones at some of my games for their writing in different areas but the um i think the biggest thing i think people often mistake I think people think I'm a good writer, but they're actually missing the point that I'm not necessarily a good writer. I'm maybe a good writer, but not a great writer. But I'm also the designer who gets to make every decision. Mm. And that the, the being both of those people means that I get to make the right choice and make sure the right choice makes it into the final game. Mm. Um, you know, my, my friends and colleagues who are writers in either AAA or even on indie stuff, if they're not in charge they can do all the greatest writing in the world. Mm. But if decisions are being made that don't serve the story, 
then they're going to have a problem. If they if they they can come up with the greatest characterization of this really interesting uh, character, you know, they have to go to five places in the game, and this is the reason they went there. And that there's a journey, and it's a metaphor, and they're using some Greek tragedy structure, and they're doing all the clever shit in the world. Mm. Sorry, can I say shit on the podcast? You absolutely can. Excellent. They could be doing all of that. Um, but then that third level gets deleted and suddenly mm. the whole thing's thrown off. Mm. And as a player, we never see that. We're not aware of those problems and stories. For me, the, the, I don't think it's a coincidence that if you think about the games that kind of do excel in terms of their storytelling, they're largely the games where the person telling the story is in a position of power. Mm. You know, it's mm. it, um, Uncharted, Naughty Dog in general come up a lot, right? It's not a coincidence that the story people are running that those mm, games like mm. that's that's why it's because they are making games that are in service to their story. While also, you know, it's not a gameplay or story debate. You can do both simultaneously. It's it's just requires planning. But yeah, I think that's the that's the thing. So for me, yeah, I think I think writers should be listened to. I think that's the that's the immediate that that would solve. 80% of the narrative problems in, in the games industry is just get, and also, frankly, a bit of humility from people who aren't writers. You know, mm, like mm. I think definitely, I think every writer I know has the story of the game designer who's got their script, got all of their, their story notes, and then just changed the order completely because the game designer wants to rewrite the story. And it's like, no, that's that was all doing stuff that you didn't see what that was what that was doing. So I think it is just about respecting it. It's really about respecting the story, respecting the people working on the story. Mm. So you worked with a slightly different team on this game. I mean, you mentioned mm-hmm. Moo earlier. Yeah. Um, how do you go about building a team? And what do you look for? Um, Not just on this game, but in any of your games. What's, what's your what approach? What do I look for? So... so I'm pretty organic in terms of how I how I search people. Like I don't um, I don't tend to do job. Um, I don't go through agencies or do big rounds of interviews. I tend to just try and find interesting people who I think make interesting things or or have a real skill at something in particular, and then I'll just kind of stalk them in a slightly creepy way on social media. <laughs> that's usually usually that's what it is. I'll usually like I mean anyone who looks at my Twitter like I'm following I don't know how many thousand people mostly selfishly i'm mostly following people who i think are really interesting and do interesting stuff or have interesting opinions or or whatever um and that's generally how i find people is and i'll be watching and i'll know what the kinds of people i need for a thing and i know the kind of the way we work and the kind of what that requires and what kind of personalities maybe fit into that but also maybe what kind of personalities would take the company in a different direction um because i don't want to create i don't want to have an army of clones i want to have you know um an interesting diverse team um so it's that it's also recommendations but yeah there's a there's a story for everyone so i mean we'll do it let's do it subsurface circular so moo uh who's the coder i was literally realizing i can't code subsurface circular it's i would make a terrible job of building a dialogue system okay i need a really good programmer who do i know that's a really good programmer oh my mate moo he's brilliant <laughs> <laughs> like he's really good and everyone likes him and, and i've only ever heard good things about him from people he's worked for um with uh gareth who was one of the uh, who was a new concept artist on this one just someone who posts on twitter so a, a recent graduate um Really interesting style, very good at weird, quirky artwork. Uh, so just kind of hit him up and side chatting to him about maybe working on some stuff. And we did a few other things. Um, and then, yeah, Subsurface is kind of the first of those things to come to light. Um, 
Julie, who does the QA, uh, was is a, is an old colleague of Moose from Media Molecule, uh, who uh, you know has a family, is, is a young mom who's quite busy. So uh, she was looking for a job she could do for three hours a day. Um, and didn't have to go to an office. I was like, I don't have an office. There's no office for you to come to. This is this is perfect. So it's finding all of these kind of people who um, who fit the way we make games um, and that do really cool work. Um, so yeah, if I follow you on Twitter, probably it's because I think you're interesting, and maybe at some point I'm going to jump in your DMs and, and ask if you want to come do something with us. But yeah, it's uh, so it's pretty pretty like yeah, I'm pretty. Because the teams are quite small, you can do it that mm. way. I think, you know, obviously, if I was trying to start a 200-person company, that wouldn't work quite so well. Mm. But at our scale, I can find really interesting collaborators. Do you have any intention of growing beyond the kind of scale that you've attempted so far? If um, so, how, how far do you think you'd feel comfortable with? Because one of the things I find mm. speaking to independent developers who've been reasonably successful is they they don't like to go beyond a specific size. And usually mm. that size is anywhere around 20 to 30 and very rarely 50 if it's two projects yeah i don't i don't see myself i think i'm probably going to hit that kind of ceiling i mean volume was i mean it was all remote but volume was about 20 people Mm. maybe 30 actually might have even crept up um since then i've been sticking mainly to kind of 10 person projects honestly whatever the game demands i think that's the big thing for me um uh the office side of it is interesting because We've definitely flirted with the idea. We've we've definitely wasted some estate agents' time being shown around <laughs> offices. Um, but every time, it's it always comes back to for me like, why would I make my team members like go to an office, mm. and, like commute and do all of that stuff? Like it, it we're we're very good at remote working, and frankly, the tools and the platforms we're all sat on Slack and Skype all day just working. It's not. Mm. I don't feel that there's a a problem or a gap that an office would fill. It does make it harder to have kind of a company culture and all of that stuff. But I was always a bit cynical about the idea of company culture. Anyway, I don't I don't like the idea of a corporate like it's it's it's, it's more of it's hanging out. No, it's a job. It's work. <laughs> you know, I don't like like I get very uncomfortable. I remember whenever a studio gets a ping pong table, I was always the guy who was like, "They want us to stay here. They want us to leave. It's not. This isn't healthy." So I've always I've always been a very kind of separation of church and state kind of person when mm. it comes to social life and uh, and work and. And so it's, it kind of suits my personality as well. So I, I think I'll probably keep making stuff at the scale that allows us to work in that kind of fluid way. If an opportunity came up, if it was if there was a really interesting bigger project, I'd, I'd adapt. But for now, it feels like we're having a good time and we're making stuff we're all proud of. So, so finally, yes, you also decided to announce a book. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, so um, that was so it was it was uh, it was a side effect really of we about two and a half three years ago decided to become a professional company rather than just a bunch of idiots, um, which is why I brought in um, a guy called Alexander Slowinski, who is my American, um, who is uh, who now lives actually just up the road. He's moved over to the UK now, um, but he is. He came from a journalism background, but he also then studied for um, you know his business qualifications. Um, he's got all of that, and that meant that what that what we could do by bringing him in was we organised. We had you know a professional, well-oiled machine of a company. I, I don't deal with that stuff anymore. I, everyone gets paid, and everything happens on time, and uh, the taxes work out, and <laughs> lawyers don't have to call me, and all of this stuff. 
Um, so by professionalizing kind of what I'd built up to that point. So this was kind of that last, kind of the last year of volume we we brought Alexander in. And I just realized through that process, I think Alexander did as well, of just how easy it is to be in a position as a developer where you make good stuff that people like and that sells. And maybe you're on a platform or two, you're on a console or you're on mobile or you're doing various things. How high you can actually manage to get while not having a functional business, mm. while not actually having everything set up properly. Um, and that's not just set up properly in terms of like, let's keep everything tidy and organized. It's like literally like I was messing up stuff. I was I was screwing up everything. Um, and because of the nature of making games and because it's also hit-driven and everything, you can actually get pretty far without knowing the business stuff. Mm. So the exact, at the moment where you realize, oh God, I don't know what a payroll is. <laughs> I've been paying people, <laughs> but I've been paying people by opening and, you know, going to the bank with some, with checks, you know. <laughs> so the second you realize you have to get that stuff organized, often it's, it's terrifying because you've gotten to a point where you're actually kind of successful. Um, so we were talking about that and we were talking about, okay, how do we, how do we, how do we help other devs to not make this mistake? And we did a few things. We we started a podcast, um, the Bill Games podcast. If you're listening to this, you should absolutely listen to that. <laughs> little plug. We started a podcast, and uh, you know, we started kind of talking about the business side and trying to demystify that and making it a bit less boring. Um, that was step one in that process. But the but yeah, then um, we got chatting to Mike Futter, who's a um, who's, who was journalist for many many years, a Game Informer, um, but someone who was very qualified at business coverage similarly qualified and, and and knows all that stuff but also had been reporting on industry for years and years and years kind of the guy who was very good at demystifying very complex business terms for a consumer games mm. website um and he seemed like someone who had the right skill set and the right kind of um capacity to explain this stuff that we should get him to do it <laughs> so that was the thing was, was let's get him to do it so we so he's been yeah for about just under a year he's been uh, running around interviewing everyone he can and and people have been great actually people have been very good at giving us their time to kind of give their insights tell their stories and it's it's resulted in yeah this book which um is written I'm doing the I'm doing the I, I I've never done the graphic design on a book before, so I'm doing all the graphic design at the moment. Although I'm not because it's taking me too long and I'm way behind schedule, but that's fine. Um so we're we're putting together this book that that has all this information and it's, you know, boring stuff. It's just a book of boring stuff. That's probably not a good way of selling it. <laughs> but it's but it's it's how to how to budget professionally, how mm. to organize your company, how to um, what what the pros and cons of doing things like early access and Kickstarter mm. are, um, how to protect yourself legally, how to hire the right people, all of these kind of questions that you don't really want to ask because they're not very interesting and you're not mm. going to read an article about it. You're going to read, if, if, if I want to as a game developer find out how to get really nice shadows in Unity, I can Google that and I can mm. find that very nicely and very quickly. But in our book, you can open up and you can see how Ninja Theory did it. You know what I mean? It's mm. that kind mm. of thing and that's the kind of that's what I think we've we managed to achieve, and it's I like it because it's it's optimized. It's you know we don't have to. I could go and give talks at ten, twenty universities or uh, games conferences about this stuff, and still not reach anywhere near the number of people we can with you know an ebook. You know is the easiest thing in the world to distribute. Mm. Um, we're doing physical copies as well because we're 
stupid and we don't realize it's 2017 um <laughs> but we're but we're getting that stuff out there and i think that's i hope i hope it's received as you know really useful interesting educational material um and from my perspective one of the key things um and i made them put it on their website <laughs> is the whole like it's not a get rich quick book because i hate that as someone who um so with the writing i i wasn't trained to be a writer i didn't do any kind of thing so you know six, seven years ago and I decided I wanted to start writing, I bought all the books. Yeah, you know, all those yeah, books you see on yeah, the shelf, like yeah. how to write, how, yep. how stories work, all this stuff. And they're universally terrible. Like mm. there's there's good stuff in all of them, but like generally they're written by people who sort of never really kind of did the thing or like you're not you're not reading Christopher Nolan's guide to screenplay right, writing. Right. Like or you know, it's it, the people who who did really well don't write those books. Um and I, I always felt that there was a bit of snake oil kind of vibe to yeah, some of them. Yeah. So it was very important to me with this one that it's not that. It, at no point does the does the book in any way promise you that it's going to help you have a successful business. All it's trying to do is make sure that you have a business. <laughs> like it's not. <laughs> it's all about survival. It's all about like just what do you do to be to get your stuff organized and what are the traps to avoid. So we'll see. It's um it's in. We're doing pre-orders now on it. Um, just mainly to gauge just how many copies we need to print, essentially. Um, but yeah, people seem to be into it. We'll see. It's called the Game Developers Business Handbook. Fantastic. Or the Game Dev Biz Book. dot <laughs> uh, com is the URL. But yeah, it's um I think it's going to be interesting. I'm really proud of it. I think Futter's done a great job writing it. It's just it's really accessible, but also like detailed. Mike Bithor, Hello. Thank you very much for talking to remaster it's been a pleasure well to shahid actually but you know what i mean i i i i feel that i can talk to both simultaneously and that's that's kind of that's, kind that's of cool. quite a skill it's good you're very Thank good you. at this I like it. <laughs> <laughs>